to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I've got a very special guest with me today, uh, returning for, I think, maybe the third or possibly fourth time on the show so far, uh, author, theologian, philosopher, all-around swell guy, Thomas J. Ord. Thanks for coming back, Tom. Thanks for the invitation, Ariel. I always enjoy our conversations. Absolutely. You've had an eventful uh last uh, last few months, and, and you definitely uh, have been busy since the last time that we talked for the podcast. Um, why don't you tell folks a little bit about what you've been up to since the last time we talked? Great. Well, in the last couple of months, and we're recording this in June of 2023, uh, two books that I've done came out. Well, actually, one is a monograph called The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Amnipotence. And uh, that's a I don't know, roughly 200-page book arguing against the classic view of God's power and suggesting an alternative. And then a second book, which I've co-edited with my daughter, uh, it's 90-plus essays from current or former members of the Church of the Nazarene, and the book is called Why the Church of the Nazarene Should Be Fully LGBTQ Plus Affirming. And um, that's, you know, created a stir in my in the denomination that I'm an ordained elder in, uh, which is a pretty small holiness denomination. Yeah, that's a controversial topic, no matter what the denomination is. It seems <laughs> yeah. like there are <laughs> good point. <laughs> <laughs> there seem to be a few that that have gone sort of all in on on being affirming, but uh, you know, even as we're seeing in in uh, denominations like the the Methodists, uh, the the massive split that sort of went on there, and yeah. and the way that things are changing within the Lutheran Church. It still is a hot button issue. This is yep. uh, something that still gets gets a lot of heat. So, well, speaking for my people, I appreciate your support, Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a <laughs> small taste of what it feels like to have people hate me for my views. I mean, <laughs> I'm a straight person. It's not even my sexuality they hate me for, but it's still, it's um, yeah. So I have a small taste of that. Yeah, it's a real it's a real shame, and and I think that um, your writing in general is uh, is will take some people by surprise. I think the topics that you approach are um, in some people's eyes controversial. Um, the way that you approach um, the person of God, um, God's power, and God's action in the world is is not uh, orthodox to some folks. And we've talked a little bit about that in the past on the show, but this new book that you just released, I think a couple of months ago here, uh, called The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Omnipotence, is a really great read. I'm just going to go ahead and recommend it to everybody right now. Uh, If you haven't had the chance to pick it up yet, definitely do. I would recommend the same that you you do the same for uh, Tom's last book, Pluriform Love, which I also was a big fan of. And... uh, and he definitely um, he definitely brings uh, some some really really thoughtful ideas to the table, and and definitely challenged me honestly in, in a number of places to reconsider how I viewed God, and why it was that I thought God was the way that God is. So um, so yeah, uh, 
since we're done catching up, let's just dive into the new book first. Great. Um, where did where did the concept for this book come from? Um, how did it sort of bubble up for you? Why this topic of all topics? Uh, since you write, you know, all of your writing is sort of surrounding open and relational theology, and and you have sort of dealt with God's power before in the book God Can't. Right. Um, why this book and why now? Yeah. Um... Well, there are four reasons, and those four reasons are played out in the four chapters. (laughs) So one reason is that I wanted to tell the story of why omnipotence isn't in the Bible, and the words in English, almighty, that are translated almighty uh, from the Hebrew and Greek, are mistranslations. And I thought that story needed to be told and then I needed to, in terms of scripture, address a question of whether or not the Bible, even if it doesn't use the word omnipotent or almighty, implies that God is almighty in the sense of controlling. So that was one reason to write the book. Second reason to write the book uh, ends up being the second chapter that I called Dying a Death of a Thousand Qualifications. I wanted to show readers that omnipotence has been qualified by progressive and conservative theologians ever since people started using the word. They didn't really mean God can do absolutely anything. They wanted to qualify what that they meant by omnipotence. And I don't know that anybody's really kind of stacked all these qualifications up, at least not in the way I have. And I was hoping to sh- alert the, the reader that um, if you have to qualify the word in that many ways— um, maybe it's not a very good word to use. <laughs> <laughs> the third reason I wrote this book was I wanted to return to some of the issues I've been dealing with in terms of the problem of evil, which is usually the reason people start with if they want to rethink God's power. You know, if God is so powerful and so loving, then why doesn't God stop the genuine evils of the world? I wanted to revisit that, but I kind of wanted to show how two issues I haven't addressed in previous books are important. One is the political issue, and that is people in power, especially kings and presidents, have appealed to an omnipotent God as justification for their own uh, place in power. After all, if God can do anything, God either installs them in power or at least permits them to be in power. And secondly, and maybe more controversially, I wanted to say that when I go to church and when most people go to church and they participate in the liturgy, whether it's the song sung, the prayers said, every time an omnipotent God is referred to, they're setting people up in the pews to think that God can do anything. And then that when they face problems, when they face struggles, evils, pain, unnecessary suffering, then they start asking questions like, okay, well, if God's omnipotent, why doesn't God rescue me? And then the fourth reason, um, I wanted, well, when people read my book, God Can't, I think it was very clear to them (laughs) that I was saying God can't stop evil single-handedly. But what wasn't clear was what I thought God could do and does do. And I think people thought they had to choose between a God who is omnipotent, which I don't think they, I don't like that, and a God who is impotent, God who does nothing. 
and I wanted to create this third way that I call amipotence. So long mm-hmm. answer to your good question. Well, I think that um, you, you address those topics at length in the book and, and thoroughly. I mean, I think that um, it's, it's our nature, I think, as Christians to think that anything that's not good is evil. And so, uh, we, of course, we think God is either all-powerful or absolutely without. But if you say that God is not all-powerful or is not omnipotent, then God must be impotent. Yeah. Because if you take any power away from God, they create this God as like a house of cards, right? You pull one out, and all of a sudden, it all falls down. Right. And, uh, and what a disastrous way to think about our Creator, um, just given the way even th- that we see God exist in the Scriptures. Uh, not just the way that we see God in our everyday lives and, and the way that we see the good creation coming together in the way that it has and the struggles that the, the creation overall that creatures have too. Um, but in Scripture, uh, we see a God that often has questions. We see a God that um, often doesn't seem entirely sure about what, uh, what God's going to do. So um, in that way, I wanted us to, to read a little Scripture today. Uh, if you don't mind, um, we'll go into this, and then I think we'll kind of just weave back and forth uh, with what we were talking about in the book, because I think all of this stuff is kind of part and parcel with um, with what we're what we're dealing with. Um, the The passage that I wanted to read with you, or or go over with you, and and try to kind of pull apart in in the idea and the notion and the sense of uh, talking about God's omnipotence versus omnipotence, God being all-knowing, all-powerful, or some-knowing and some-powerful, um, is actually the fall. We're a part of the section of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Um, I'm just going to start reading, if that's all right, from uh, verse 8 uh, through—we'll uh, stop right at about verse—I'll th- stop right at about verse 13 just to start. Okay. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Uh, God's asking a lot of questions, just right off the bat. The, right off the bat, God God doesn't really seem to understand what's really happened here, at least at first. I've heard a lot of uh, people explain away these kinds of questions as God kind of asking things rhetorically. Um, in your book, you mentioned that God certainly knows all things that can be known, but can't know things that can't yet be known. Do I have that that concept about right? Yeah, that's pretty close, yeah. Um, how do you see that idea playing out here? Does God actually know where Adam and Eve are, or is God actually looking in this particular case? Yeah, great question. I think God has real questions and doesn't know the future, but I think God knows everything that's happening in the present and the past. So while I do think God asks questions and doesn't know um, things that are going to happen 
Um, I think in this particular passage, this is a way of saying to uh, Adam, I guess here. Oh, I guess both are here, Adam and Eve. Um, you know, what's going on? I want an account of, of your actions. <laughs> what, what are your what are your your intentions here? What are your purposes? Um, and so there, there's another part of this passage that's always kind of troubled me a little bit, and that is um, that you have a God with an actual body walking along. Yeah, uh, that's another detail that's interesting, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I have, I grew up in a part of the country in which a lot of my friends were LDS, Latter-day Saints, Mormons. And um, they would put the point to this passage and say, see, it's right there in the text. God got an actual body walking in the garden. And um, there's other, lots of other biblical passages that speak of God as having an actual body or arms or eyes or whatever. So um, there's a lot going on here. I think everybody who comes to this passage comes to it with certain assumptions. And the parts they, that don't fit their assumptions, they'll say, well, those are metaphors. God walking, that's a metaphor. And the parts that yeah. fit their assumptions, they say, yep, that's literal. And, and I'm not you know, I'm not criticizing everybody. I do it. I think we all do it. Um, I think, well, I'll just stop there since I'm kind of rambling now. No, it's not, it's not rambling at all. I think, I think that you're dead on. I mean, it's curious that uh, we don't just think, uh, it's not just said that God's walking in the garden, right? But that God is making a sound while he's walking in the garden. It's, it's not just that, um, you know, God was there and God was looking around, but that Adam heard God walking and so hid and decided to to move out of the way, which really does kind of indicate, like in places where like Jacob wrestles with God, these these instances where in some way God is embodied prior to Jesus uh, coming and being born like as as a human. So uh, in some way or another, it's like God has some sort of physical manifestation, and this is where mystery comes in, because we can see this as. Um, some sort of a physical, actual physical manifestation of God. We could see this as like God's messenger kind of body person, perhaps doing the actual walking. Uh, maybe God speaking through a physical body of somebody else. Um, you talk a little bit about an embodied God in the book, don't you? I do some, yeah. Um, I think of God's embodiment not as if God has an actual localized divine body, like this particular passage kind of suggests. I think of God as a universal spirit without a divine body. And we can talk metaphorically like the world is God's body, but I wouldn't, you know, use a kind of literal language. Hmm. I think, though, in this particular passage, what what I'm kind of struck with is if I were to divide this, the sort of three major camps up, uh, I'm sorry, if I were to give three major explanations of what's going on here, uh, one of them being mine and two that I don't like. Uh, one, the first one that I don't like would say God has an actual body. God really didn't know what happened in the past. Um, and God is clueless about who actually ate the, the tree um, and that sort of thing. So I, I don't buy into that God. Now, what a lot of Christians have done, at least academic theologians, the Christian in history have done, 
is they've said, well, this is all anthropomorphic language. So we're not only going to give up on the notion that God walks and that God doesn't know the past. We're going to also give up on the notion that God actually interacts with creation. Because interaction assumes that God learns things, God is affected by creatures, God is engaged in the world, uh, has some emotions even. Um, and a huge chunk of the, the classic tradition from Augustine to Aquinas and onward, they've not wanted to say God has any of that kind of uh, activity or receptivity. So I would want to distance myself from that camp. Um, I would want to say there's clues here to a God who is an interactive kind of God, but I wouldn't go so far as to say God actually has a body. Uh, the, the idea of sovereignty or impassibility in, is very, orth- is, is very uh, sort of traditional teaching within yeah. the Christian church that, that we can't do anything to God. Um, God is not really affected by our behavior. God is the one that does the affecting. Right. That we, you know, God doesn't need anything from us. Um, we just need to know from, we need to hear from God, or God needs to be doing the doing, essentially. This idea of God controlling all power, um, not just being all-powerful in quotation marks, but actually being the source of all power in the entire world or in the entire universe. Um the uh, there is a fine line to walk here, right? If if you can see God as understanding and knowing what's already happened, is rather than saying what have you done, more like what have you done? Uh, you know, there's two different tones there. Yeah, yeah, I like um, that. But that does imply, even if you're even if you are taking on what is, I think, a slightly more traditional understanding of what's happening here, and saying that God did already know. And God is not maybe not asking rhetorically, but asking as as a sort of a way to to ask for an account of the behavior of Adam and Eve. Um, but God is affected by the activity yeah. that um, what happened affected God enough that He felt the need to go to to go seek out Adam and Eve and to ask them like, "What are you doing? Why have yeah. you done this?" Yep. It does strike me as. I want to say this as carefully as I can. It strikes me as the sort of God who doesn't know the future, and not only that, but can't control the future and may not be able to tell us what to do from time to time or or make us do a certain thing from time to time. There's a fine line to walk again between uh, a God who can't do any kind of action or any (laughs) kind of controlling versus a God that can only do a certain amount. And walking that line is is complicated, as I'm sure you yeah, know, because this is what a lot of your writing deals with. Yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I'm in an, what we call the open relational community, and there's plenty of disagreement within that community exactly what God's power is like. Um, you know, I'm in the camp that wants to go so far as to say that God can never control creatures in the sense of being the only cause to bring about an outcome. But there are others in the camp who want to say, well, God usually doesn't control, but every once in a while, God will control the weather or maybe control creatures if it's really super important. Um, And so there's a real debate within the open relational camp on this issue. None of us want to say that God controls everything, uh, but we all want to say God does things. And as you say, sort of teasing out the nuances uh, is when it gets really interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And the, and, and the more of Scripture you read, the more instances that you see of God either not knowing everything or not controlling everything. Yes, I um, think the open and relational visions fits the Bible better than any alternative. I'm not saying every last part of the Bible fits an open and relational perspective, but the vast majority do. And there is definitely um, – so when you are teasing out the language that's used in Scripture, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, for um, what we know to be the words like almighty or omnipotent or all-powerful, um, the word itself in the New Testament seems to be rare, right? The instances of right. that word are actually – is actually quite rare. But – um, the word that's used in the Hebrew is, you argue, to be like a mistranslation, almost entirely a mistranslation right, of what, yeah. what's actually being said there. Yeah, and there's actually two words that are mistranslated in English as almighty. The first one is probably known at least to some of your listeners is the word Shaddai. We usually have it connected with El Shaddai, and it first appears in Genesis about chapter 17 or so. Um, and what biblical scholars say that Shaddai means is something like the breasted one or the one of breasts. And the idea is that God is the, uh, the nurturing, the nourishing one, the one of fertility. Uh, some will speculate that Shaddai has a root uh, that means the mountains because the, the word for mountain in Hebrew is sadu, which is close to Shaddai. Uh, but even then, of course, it doesn't mean almighty or omnipotent. And then the second word that is translated almighty is the word Sabaoth. And Sabaoth uh, literally means something like hosts or armies or council. And when it's preceded by one of the words in Hebrew that is often translated God or Lord, like Adonai, Elohim, El, Yahweh, um, translators have translated as almighty. One of the things I didn't know, in fact, I don't know if anybody knew this until my assistant, Brian Falusco, and I were uh, looking through this, is that that word Sabaoth, if it's not preceded by a word that's often translated God or Lord, you know, El, Elohim, it's never translated as mighty or almighty. It's always translated as host. But what happened is in the 2nd and 3rd centuries BCE, a bunch of uh, Greek-speaking Jews wanted to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And to do that, they had to make choices about what Greek words they thought fit the Hebrew words. And they chose the word pantocrator in Greek. Panto meaning all, crater or kriteo meaning something like holding or sustaining and they translated El Shaddai and Sabaoth as Pantocrator, both words. That word then, as you mentioned, shows up ten times in the New Testament, nine of them in the book of Revelation. And uh, eventually, in the, about the 6th century, Jerome is looking at the scriptures and sees Pantocrator, and he's Latin, and he uses the word omnipotence. And so that's where we get the word omnipotence. So that's a long explanation, but my way of saying these words in Hebrew were mistranslated that eventually got us to omnipotent. Well, I mean, that to me just speaks really uh, 
really intently to how important a translator's choices are. Mm. Uh, and if we see that those few words moving from meaning to meaning, mm -hmm. uh, and, and think about the entirety of the text and how those texts can change yes. uh, over the course of history as we move them from language to language. The, the thing that strikes me the most about those words, at least at their root, is Shaddai especially and uh, Pantocrator have this nurturing, holding, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and sort of a caring uh, mm -hmm. vibe about them. They sound very um, sort of like uh, sort of nurturing and giving and, and, and nourishing. Almost. Nourishing is probably, ma yeah. yeah, maternal. Yeah. Or paternal. Yeah, or paternal, um, yeah. Yeah, my, uh, it makes me think of that uh, Sunday school song. He's got the whole world in his hands, yeah, right? I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that actually can be true without mm -hmm. saying that God necessarily is um, controlling all things and knows all things. Um, the, 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 the place where I want to sort of pivot this conversation is the place where this passage kind of pivots. Okay. Uh, we go from God uh, being sort of curious or um, maybe a little miffed, but, but kind of just asking for an explanation of what have you done, to God sort of launching into a little bit of a tirade mm -hmm. at Adam and Eve and the serpent. And uh, saying to the serpent that you will uh, crawl on your belly for the rest of your days, you'll eat dust, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's in um, verses 14 and 15. Um, we see a turn in God here. We see God almost getting kind of upset, uh, kind of angry, and... I don't like the image of an angry God. I don't I think don't many people do. <laughs> there are yeah. some that thrive on this idea <laughs> of God <be> that they <laughs> thrive on this idea of God becoming really angry and angry to the point that he will smite all the people that have done him wrong in one way or another. This notion has carried through America, you know, uh, Western theology for for ages. You know, some of the most popular. Uh, theologians in, in modern Christianity have this idea sort of somewhere along the line in their heads. What happened in, in an open and relational perspective, in the, um, in the idea, in the concept of a loving, all loving, and a loving by nature God, yeah. a God that loves by necessity, what happens with that God in, in pieces of scripture like this? When God gets angry, um, is it anger? Is it disappointment? Is it frustration? How is that expressed in your theology of love? Yeah, I think most people in the open and relational camp will say God does get angry. God's angry when we do things that hurt us or hurt creation. But the question is, does that anger then prompt God to lash out in punishment? or prompt God to put curses on all animals and, you know, make childbirth painful or make working the earth a, a bummer. Um, is that what's going on? And here you'll get a split. So I'll just talk from my perspective. I don't think God ever punishes in that way. I don't think God's anger ever brings God to the place where God is, um, you know, getting vengeance uh, and wrath is becoming... Uh, some kind of retribution. I don't believe in that kind of God. But 
there are passages of Scripture like the one we've just read that seem to portray God as that. So what I do in those things is I say, okay, I know that I believe that some of these things here are telling us the truths about God and other things, maybe not so much. They're more metaphorical or literary. Um, and then I ask myself, okay, well, is it okay for me to speculate what the author might be up to in talking and telling this story? So I kind of take a narrative approach and I think to myself, well, humans for a long time, at least the ones who've believed in a good God, who is a creator, they've had a real difficult question on their hands. If God is so good and the creator, then why do bad things happen? Why do, you know, why is childbirth painful? Why is work sometimes a bummer? Why is there fear of snakes and not, not not necessarily that this is a snake here but most people have thought of it like that and um and so i think the genesis authors are trying to give some kind of answer and they turn to something that i think is pretty widely assumed and i assume it as well and that is when you do things that are harmful there are negative consequences. I mean, it's almost by definition, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and what has happened, I think, is that many people who believe God is, is creator, which I do, but they also think God is omnipotent. And so they think that whatever consequences come in life, that must be from God. So if bad things are in the world, if childbirth is difficult, well, God must have made it that way. If working in the, in the field is no fun, well, tough luck. God's doing that because of what somebody else did in the past. Um, I personally think there are natural negative consequences that come from sin, and there's natural kind of suffering, or at least a capacity for suffering, built into just life itself. And it's not God that's imposing these sorts of things. But I do think that the writer here is trying to kind of put the, the the blame, you might say, or the responsibility upon God in, in this section. I think that's a really beautiful way to look at this because oh, um, there is the, the, the idea of um, scri- scriptural be, uh, scripture being in, infallible, uh, inerrant, right. is, again, the orthodox position, right? There, most churches will take this in, in one way or another as the, the Bible is the Word of God. We're not supposed to be questioning what's being said here. Obviously, you can analyze things in different ways, and you can, you can interpret things in different ways, but what's in the book is in the book, and what's in the book is true. Um, I think I've been pretty clear on this podcast that I don't believe that an inerrant view of Scripture is very helpful in understanding, helping us understand what's so what's so important about Scripture, right? And or or helping us understand God. Yeah. Um, but I like this turning rather than saying God is the one causing all of these uh, things to happen, either as a reaction to our bad behavior or just because God's pissed, um, <laughs> and rather saying. <laughs> These things are bad, or these things are painful, or we toil and we we struggle, and there are these bad things in the world. We are looking, we're we're begging for an example of why this would be, or for an explanation for why God could have caused this. But again, all that traces back 
to this idea of omnipotence. Right. It is that way because God made it that way. And if it is that way, if it sucks and God made it that way, then God must have intended it that way as some kind of a punishment. Yep, yep. I think that's going on here. Even if they don't have like the, what we later think of as omnipotence in mind, they at least think God has got the kind of power that God can punish you if you step out of line. Uh, Now, of course, the Hebrew scriptures and the Bible in general, they're a conversation. And the notion that God is the one who is doing all the bad things and, you know, bad things happen to bad people, uh, that gets challenged when we get to Job. And all of a sudden, you've got a righteous guy who has bad things happen to him. Um, so there's some counter voices in the scriptures themselves to this idea that God is the one who's behind all the bad stuff that happens to people. And mm-hmm. it's all a result of, it's all punishment for misdeeds and sin. Mm-hmm. Um, or worse, that uh, something is just bad and we have to accept it because that's the way that God planned it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, this is something I think you, you refer to as like pulling the mystery card or, or just <laughs> using mystery as a way of excusing everything away. Um, yep. <laughs> it's uh, so not helpful and it's so yeah. not um, uh, not a constructive way for us to know God better, to say, well, God's ways are higher than our ways. I certainly come to places in my life where um, I I face a difficult time and I really truly feel um, as though I I don't have a solution for this and I'm only begging that God can help me get out of it. But uh, to to live in your life as though every bit of suffering that you go through is somehow a a punishment for something that you did wrong really has got to be a miserable existence. Exactly. Um, And and all in the name of a mystery, all in the name of God's will, which we don't, we don't know. Uh, We don't know what God has at hand. It's almost the same. It's almost the same amount of confusing to me as people just saying, well, that's, that's just the evil in the universe. That's Mm. the evil one. That's the one Satan doing all the, Mm -hmm. that God does the good stuff and the Satan does the bad stuff. Right. That's oversimplified, feels oversimplified too. Exactly. Especially if those same people think God is omnipotent, which just about everybody does. You haven't solved the question. You've just then begged, why does this omnipotent God allow Satan to do those bad things? So, <laughs> yeah. But you know, or worse, I, I, you've, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, or worse, you've created a Satan that's as powerful as God. Yeah, that's and, right. Good point. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah, I've definitely heard people talk, and I think, boy, your God is strong, or your Satan is stronger than God, or at least equally strong. Um, yeah, so I totally agree with you. But I think I want to, I want to propose that the reason people think God is the one who is bringing harm or at least pain and bad consequences in the world stems from a kind of cause and effect view of reality that makes a lot of sense in most cases. So, you know, let's say tonight, I don't happen to drink alcohol, but let's say tonight I decide tonight I'm going to drink, you know, I don't know, I'm going to get stone drunk. And the next morning I'm going to feel rotten, right? So I'm going to suffer because of something stupid I did the night before. 
what people see. Well, there's, you know, you reap what you sow, says scriptures. You, you do these sorts of things and you're going to have consequences. That's the kind of world we live in. And so then people, if they believe in God and they think God is omnipotent, well, they think that God must be somehow, you know, the one who's really behind things. And um, what gets tough is when you're the victim of somebody else's poor choices. Because then all of a sudden you're reaping the consequences of somebody else's sins or mistakes or bad judgment. Um, and since I think we live in an interrelated universe, that's going to happen to us. <laughs> that's just sort of inevitable. But it's easier in those kinds of situations to say, oh, well, God is uh, orchestrating something bad to either punish me for what I've done bad or to build my character or to teach me some kind of lesson. Um, because, again, people who have this view think God can do anything. And God's either causing all this stuff or allowing it to happen. So all that mm. just to say, I think a lot of this thinking stems from just living in a world of cause and effect. Uh, it's just that we've inserted an omnipotent God in that causal nexus, and that's led to all kinds of disastrous results. It can cause a lot of harm, and it can drive a lot of people away from from faith. Yes. And this is a point that you make in the book, too, that there there is actually... I don't, I don't think for, for a lot of people, something that drives them further away from their faith in God than this notion that every bad thing that's happened to them has somehow been God's plan. Yep. Um, it takes it takes a very stone-faced person to uh, face down the difficulties of life and say, this is simply the way that it ought to be, and I just thank God for it every day. And, you know, it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah. that I've had all these terrible things happen to me because someday I'll be rewarded for it. And it's... In a way, that sort of uh, that sort of attitude is admirable because, boy, you can really put up with a lot of shit before it it, it starts to drive you insane. Yeah, right. <laughs> yep. But I've seen um, just instances in my life of people who I've known who have been uh, faithful Christians or even agnostic, sort of curious in faith, and have faced down. Uh, the rhetoric that they've seen, either that they grew up with or that they've seen play out in the church today, and have said, well, to hell with all that. I mean, I'm right. not going to bother myself with it. If this is the outlook that they have, then, you know, I, I'd rather just think that everything is for nothing and there's no point to any of this because that hurts less than yep. the idea of a God that would allow all of this to happen. Yeah, right now there's a video clip going along, around in Reels and TikTok of Neil deGrasse Tyson saying, well, you know, everybody I know who believes in God says God is omnipotent, and if that's the case, then why are these bad things? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, he needs to read my book, God Can't. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he's making the logical inference, and it's what most atheists, I mean, uh, polls say this is the number one reason atheists say they can't believe God exists. Mm. And it's troubling, too, because we see instances in Scripture of, of there being like a curse upon generations, mm. that like a punishment for one person's sins will then be visited upon not just them, but their their family, their, their, you know, generations down the road. And then there's another part in Scripture where they'll say, I don't make those generational curses. God wouldn't do that. It's It's confusing because... Scripture itself contradicts itself in those instances, right. but um, that that anybody's punishment, if there is such a thing as a direct 
God-ordained punishment for one's sins, that that punishment would then carry on down the family line does seem like a cruel type of God. That does exactly. not seem like a God that loves us. And one, the, one of the most repeated, if not the most repeated uh, passage in Scripture is repeated in one of the Psalms in every other line. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. If the love is the thing that gets repeated the most, maybe that's the... If if Scripture is God-breathed and, and this is God speaking to us, listen to what gets repeated most often. His steadfast love endures forever. The love is the central piece of uh, of, of what God is trying to communicate to us, not the generational curses, not the punishment for, for our sins being carried down, or even the punishment being, uh, you know, even the bad things that happen to us being directly a punishment for our sins. Exactly. I totally agree. It makes me, it reminds me of uh, the work of Terence Fredheim, who's a pretty important uh, Old Testament scholar and, and open relational thinker. He makes the claim, and I'm, I'm bringing it up as we talk here, hopefully. Um, uh, I can't, oh yeah, here it is. He thinks that the most recurring description of God in the Old Testament says this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And you can find that in about, I don't know, six or seven different uh, books in the Old Testament. That's similar to your steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That's repeated <laughs> over and over in the Psalms. Um, so I think you can make a case using just the Hebrew scriptures alone, Old Testament, that the dominant view of God is a God of steadfast love. It's just you have to admit there's other passages that don't portray God as loving. At least I think you have to admit that. I think, you know, when I was younger and I really thought the Bible had to be a systematic theology and there couldn't be any contradictions, I would look at those other passages that seem to portray God as unloving and say, oh, well, they, they must some way, it must somehow be loving for God to, you know, command genocide or it must be somehow loving for God to want babies' heads to be bashed against the rocks or whatever. Um, now, today, I just say, no, I just think sometimes the biblical authors got God wrong and other biblical authors got God right. Now, I don't know for sure, mm -hmm. but that's where I'm putting my cards. Well, since we're talking about Genesis, um, one aspect of uh, the God that you sort of detail in your theology and across a couple of your books um, talking about God creating, but God creating with the help of creation or God mm. creating out of what has already been created. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that idea a little bit for folks? Yeah. So this is a novel theory of creation that I'm putting on the table for people to consider. And to understand it, I think it's good to start with what people would call the orthodox view. The orthodox view emerged in about the 4th or 5th century, and it's orthodox in the sense of most people in the Christian tradition have believed this. It's the view that God once existed all alone, and then for whatever reason, out of love, wanting glory, bored, for some reason, God decided to create out of absolutely nothing, not out of God's self, 
that would be deism. We'd all be divine then, but not also out of some stuff out there that God happened upon. God decided to create something out of absolute nothingness. The Latin is creatio ex nihilo. This is a view that has been accepted by the vast majority of theologians in the past and the present. And I think it's the wrong view. I think it's the wrong view because it ends up implying God has a kind of creative power that God can do things all alone and therefore and to create something out of nothing. And if that's the case, then it seems like God alone is responsible for the structures and systems that have from which evil has come. God is able to create something out of nothing in the present to stop really bad things from happening. There's all kinds of real problems that emerge from this God who can create something out of nothing. In my own work, I've drawn from the work of biblical scholars who point out that this idea of God creating out of nothing is just not in the Bible, at least not in the Protestant canon. And even then, the, the second Maccabees passage uh, in the uh, Catholic or, uh, canon is ambiguous. But it's not in Genesis 1 for sure. There we have... Mm -hmm. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless void, and the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And so you've got something there right at the beginning, a chaos. So I'm going on too long now, but I'll just end by saying— No, no, you're fine. Okay. Um, so <laughs> my, my proposal has been, what if we said God is the creator, God didn't create out of absolute nothingness, God didn't create of God's own self, so we don't, we're not divine. But God also didn't happen to stumble upon some stuff and then say, hey, I think I'll create a universe. But what if we thought God always, at every single moment, creates out of that which or alongside creation and creatures? And this creative process in various forms and complexities has been going on everlastingly. There never was a time God was totally isolated. God's always been creating others' creation out of that which God previously created, and there was no T0, no absolute beginning point. Now, mm -hmm. when people hear that, they say, oh man, I can't get my head around that. I mean, what does it mean to say that God had no beginning to God's creating? And I say to them, well, it's the same kind of logic that most Christians use when they say God didn't have a beginning. Um, that's mm -hmm. something that you can't get your head around either. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's a long explanation for my proposed theory that, as you put it, creation and creatures are a part of the creative process. It's not a it's not a simple question, so I wasn't expecting a simple okay. answer. It's a, it's it's a prompt it's a prompt for a whole book. Actually, yeah, so it is. you can use that if you want to. Well, I've got a uh, book half written on this subject, so okay, <laughs> one good. of these days I'm going to finish it. <laughs> well, this is the reason I brought this last bit up here is because I wanted to circle back to this idea of God. If God isn't omnipotent. Yeah. What is God? Yeah. Uh, are we reducing, by saying God is not omnipotent, are we reducing God uh, to essentially like the deist view of being unconnected and uncaring and divided from us entirely? Or how does God play into our lives? How does God still have an effect 
And how does God still uh, breathe into our lives, not just by giving us his breath, by giving us the breath of life, but by uh, moving in the world? Yeah. And um, could you explain a little bit about how you see God play out now in, in action, in uh, you know, active present tense? Yeah, before I do that, let me say to folks who are listening, um, the last half of the last chapter in The Death of Omnipotence, I'm kind of laying out the details of what I'm about ready to sketch right now. Um, I think God is a universal spirit of love, a spirit we can't perceive with our five senses, but is actually active in all of creation at all times. To use philosophical language, God is a necessary cause in the creation of everything that exists, moment by moment. God, because God is absolutely present to everything in every universe, and none of us are like that, God's a far greater creator than we are. And because God's been at it everlastingly, and you and I, and we're temporal, we haven't existed everlastingly, God's also far greater. So God's a real cause in the universe, in every level, the complex and the simple. But God's causation is never, ever solely God, uh, the only cause. God never unilaterally determines or single-handedly creates. God's always working in relation with or in tandem with creatures and creation from the very, very tiniest, from quarks, to the most massive uh, universe systems. God's present and active everywhere at all times. We live and move and have our being in this God. We couldn't exist without this God, but this God never single-handedly creates anything at any time. It's always a loving joint adventure with creation. It's a familiar phrase for us to hear, God is love. Right. We, we see it in scripture, but we also hear people talk about this all the time. I think it's it's equally accurate to say God is loving. God is not just loving, but God is creating. Yeah. And this is something that uh, God is doing, not just because God feels like doing it, but because this is the nature of God is mm. is to be doing this uh, alongside us, with us and in us at all times. And I think that is such a beautiful and life-giving way to think about God. Mm, I, I think it's thanks. amazing. Well, you know what? You saying that creating is the nature of God, that's something that fits in my system. But if you have a classic view of God who once existed all alone and didn't have to create, then you don't have a God who's necessarily a creator, who's creating as it's God's nature. So actually, the, the, the view I just laid on the table fits your intuition that God is by nature creating, and the usual view of God most people have doesn't fit your intuition. I always love having you on the show, Tom. I feel like we always get to some really just beautiful <laughs> uh, truths well, and just, you know, I get chills sometimes, just uh, <laughs> what, we, what we crack open in all this, in, in all this talk. So uh, I, I, uh, I appreciate you coming on and... Um, I just I wanted to give you a chance to um, you mentioned your books uh, early on, but I just want to give you another chance to plug whatever it is that you want to plug. You have a convention coming up soon, too, right? Yeah, we're doing a, a retreat in well, actually we call it a conference in uh, Wyoming at a ski resort between the Tetons and Yellowstone uh, the fir or the second week of uh, July. 
Um, thanks for letting me talk a little bit about omnipotence and also for shouting out that book, Pluriform Love. Uh, as you know, that book has more Bible in it than probably most of the books that I write. I really tried to mm -hmm. look at what Scripture says about love and, and do a lot of detail work there. So thanks for that shout out for that book. Well, and, and I always recommend your work to anybody that's that's oh, not just thanks. curious about what is open and relational theology, but like, hey, have you thought about a new perspective on God lately? Have you oh, thought about man. approaching this, challenging yourself, even if you don't walk away from Tom's writing, uh, thinking exactly the way that he thinks about things? It may make you second-guess some of the more toxic ideas that were cooked into you uh, <laughs> right. when, if you were raised in the church uh, or— you know, uh, if you had a dramatic conversion experience in a church that has a very uh, specific Orthodox view of God, that um, oftentimes actually drives people away in the long run from God, mm -hmm. to 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 challenge yourself and to you know open yourself up to the idea of a God that um, is always actually loving and is never actually uh, going to um, strike you down with with lightning. Um, <laughs> right. In a way, I feel like it's reassuring to some people because they think, well, if God can strike me down with lightning, they can strike that asshole down with lightning. And in, <laughs> in that way, it's actually good. But um, yeah, but it works both ways. And so, yeah. so yeah, just absolutely thrilled to have you back on. Thanks. Uh, Tom, again, the book is called The Death of Omnipotence and the Birth of Omnipotence. Uh, it's out now. You can get it on well, I shouldn't say Amazon first. I should say go to your local bookstore, see if they have it, or yeah. order it through a small business. And if you can't find it there, then go on Amazon, get it there. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks again so much, Tom. Thanks, Ariel. I always enjoy our conversations. This week's poem is by B.S. Murthy. Told God man in Genesis 1, him he created in form of his. Not one asked as how he did. Thought he fit in Genesis 2 to tell he used the dust for that, but to change tack after that. So in time, Muhammad told, made Jibril recite him, in the name of one who makes man on earth from clot of blood. Failed as he then to inquire wherefrom he gets all that blood. And since God hath sealed his mouth, knows not man the true roots of his. Thanks, everybody. He's got the whole.